Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. To the married I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and a husband must not divorce his wife. To the rest I say this, I, not the Lord. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer, and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer, and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let him do so. A believing man or woman is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Nevertheless, each one should retain the place in life that the Lord assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. Was a man already circumcised when he was called? He should not become uncircumcised. Was a man uncircumcised when he was called? He should not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts. Each one should remain in the situation which he was in when God called him. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. Although if you can gain your freedom, do so. For he who was a slave when he was called by the Lord is the Lord's freedman. Similarly, he who was a free man when he was called is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. But each man, as responsible to God, should remain in the situation God called him to. I wonder if you were to think back over the last week or so when you have thought to yourself, if only, if only I wasn't on this January diet, if only I didn't have an exam tomorrow, if only I had more money or that new phone, if only I had a different job that I enjoyed more. If only I had a house or a better house. If only I had more obedient children. If only. And if we haven't thought if only for a few minutes, then the world around us is very good at giving us lots of ways in which we might begin to feel if only. So we look at social media or we look at the TV adverts or the films that we watch and they're so often packed full of happy, smiling people who have everything in life. And as we look on and when we think that everyone else is happy and we're not, well, then it's very easy to think, if only, if only. And perhaps we are tempted to feel that nowhere more so than in the area of relationships. If only I was going out with that person. If only I was married. If 
only I wasn't married, if only I was married to someone else, if only. As we uh, pick up 1 Corinthians 7, I think we'll find that the Corinthians were thinking if only and in the context of their relationships. We'll see that uh, there were some Corinthian Christians who were married to each other and they were thinking if only we, we weren't married to each other, we'd be somehow better off. We've been seeing these last few weeks how the Corinthians had a very low view of the physical body, which led them to a very low view of, of sex within marriage. And it's very possible that uh, two Christians who thought it was wrong to have sex together thought that they'd be better off spiritually if they weren't in a marriage relationship, less temptation, less chance of, of going there, and able to kind of be more godly. If only I wasn't married, I'd be, I'd be more spiritual, I think some were thinking. Perhaps there are other uh, Corinthians uh, within a marriage, one Christian and the other spouse not a Christian. And the Christian thinking, if only I wasn't married to a non-Christian, I, I would, it would be easier. Perhaps the, the issue of sex within their marriage had become a difficult one. If the Christian was pulling back from sex, you can imagine it causing much friction in the relationship. Either way, the Christian thinking, if only I wasn't married to this non-Christian, if only... Well, tonight, when we think about our own context, I, my guess is many of us will not think if only in our relationships for the same reasons the Corinthians were thinking if only. And yet, as, as Paul addresses the if only feelings within the Corinthian church, I think we'll find that what he says to them is true for all of us in principle. And we'll see remarkably helpful insights into how we are called to live in our relationships today. And more than that, as we think about how our hearts so often say, if only in life, we'll see that Paul gives us a perspective on how to understand our Christian life that, that helps us to stay in the place God has put us in without feeling upset and distraught because we know that in Christ we have so much more than what the world offers us. Before we dive in tonight, let me say again that I am very aware we are touching on sensitive issues. We're not talking about abstract ideas, but real lives and real pain. And there'll be many of us here tonight who have first-hand experience of the pain that comes through broken marriages and divorce. It may be that our parents had a difficult marriage or that their marriage ended in divorce. It may be that we are currently in a difficult marriage considering divorce. It may be that we have divorced from a previous marriage. Lots of ways in which we can feel the pain of broken relationships. And tonight I just want to acknowledge the pain that I know many of you will feel on this matter. And also, please remember that Paul writes to the whole church gathered together. He wants everyone to hear what he says to everyone. So for those of us who are single and for those of us who are married, we all need to hear everything Paul says. We are one people, one church, one family. And if we are to support one another, we must be aware of what Paul says to everyone. Well, with that in mind, let's dive in. And to Christians who are contemplating divorce, Paul says first, and we'll spend much more time on this, he says, don't look to change your situation. Look at verse 10. To the married, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband. Paul is talking to two Christians here who are married, 
And he's clearly very familiar with the teachings of Jesus from the Gospels. Paul reminds the Corinthians of what Christ said in those accounts, where he consistently taught that married couples must not divorce. Paul begins by addressing the wife. Perhaps it was the wives within the Corinthian marriages who were particularly um, lobbying for divorce. We can't be sure. But he also quickly addresses the husbands too, verse 11. And a husband must not divorce his wife. The word divorce in verse 11 or the word separate in verse 10, they carry the same idea, the same weight. The command is the same for both. When two Christians are married together, neither spouse should seek divorce. Now, to our modern ears, this sounds very countercultural indeed. Divorce is so widespread. So take, for example, uh, couples in this country who were married in 1992. Within 15 years of that marriage, three out of 10 of those couples will have been divorced. If you look across the, the nation as a whole, on average, at marriages, it's a 40% divorce rate across this country. I know that in just the last couple of years, it seems divorce rates have dropped a little, but the numbers are still huge. And so when Paul says, no divorce, it would be very easy to relegate his teaching to the dustbin of history. The world has moved on, Paul. Times have changed. But we need to realize that what Paul says to the Corinthians was even more countercultural back then to their ears than it would be for our years today. Because in Corinth, divorce was even more widespread than it is today. In Corinth, you could divorce your spouse for almost any reason. So um, if you wanted to climb the social ladder, you could divorce uh, someone to, to marry uh, up in society. Uh, you could marry, uh, divorce someone just out of personal preference if you were bored with them, wanted a change. Um, there are accounts of men divorcing their wives because they didn't like the meals they cooked. All you had to do was to leave the home and the marriage was over. The idea of a lifelong marriage was almost unheard of in first century Corinth. And yet Paul insists the teaching of Jesus remains the pattern. And when Christ taught about marriage, he appealed not to a cultural preference, but to God's creation plan. So for example, in Matthew 19, one of the texts where Jesus talks about divorce, Jesus refers back to Genesis 2 to explain God's enduring pattern for marriage between a man and a woman for life. Marriage is God's plan right from the beginning, and we must not tinker with it, no matter what our culture says. Uh, that's why if you ever come to a, a wedding here at Fullwood Church, and after the couple have made their declarations to one another, they've said their vows and they've exchanged rings, and they are declared husband and wife, you'll then hear these words. Those whom God has joined together, let no one put asunder. Words taken directly from Matthew 19, verse 6. Marriage is more than a piece of paper. It is more than a public declaration. It is more even than a solemn promise. It is a joining together that is done by God himself. It is his plan, and so Christians should never seek a divorce. And yet, sadly, so many marriages, including Christian marriages, do end in divorce. 
There are many reasons, but it's all too common to hear a story like this. We used to be in love, but over the years we, we grew apart for one reason or another. It is incredibly sad. We feel awful about it. So we're, we're, we're heartbroken for the kids. But we have to be true to ourselves. We just don't love each other anymore. In fact, I love someone else instead. It would be wrong for me to stay in this marriage. I, I just don't love the person I used to. That kind of story is told so many times in our culture today. Not so, says Paul. If we marry someone, we are joined to them by God for life. Feelings may come and go. Even the best marriages at times will go through difficulties. But God's pattern is clear. Don't look to change your situation. But even then, sadly, sometimes it's just not possible to stay together. In this broken world, Paul knows that some marriages will come to an end. That's why he says, verse 11, but if she does separate, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. I know these are hard words, but such is the significance of marriage that the only option for a couple who separates, it's, it's singleness or it's to be reconciled. For those who are single for this reason, remember what we looked at last week when Paul begin, began to address singleness and how it's a place where we can still serve the Lord very meaningfully indeed. In a very small number of situations, uh, there may be an exception. We'll come on to that in just a moment. But for the overwhelming majority of those who are married, this is the pattern. For two Christians married together, we must not seek to change our situation. But what about the other kind of situation? One where one spouse has become a Christian and the other spouse is not a Christian. What happens then? And this uh, particular scenario was not an issue in Jesus' day. It was only later when the gospel began to spread and people started to believe in the gospel that this um, mixed marriage situation started to become an issue. And so in this relatively new situation, Paul speaks not with any less authority than with Jesus. As an apostle, he speaks, verse 12. To the rest I say this, I, not the Lord. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. Then he goes on to explain the same is true with a believing wife. She must not divorce her husband. And this may have been a surprise to the Corinthians. We saw two weeks ago how um, the, the Christian body is so important to God that um, when a Christian becomes uh, a Christian, they are joined to Christ, and that union impacts our body. And so Paul said two weeks ago that it, a Christian must not take their body that's joined to Christ and then join that body to a prostitute in sex. It must not be, he said two weeks ago. That's the extreme situation. But what about the less extreme situation where a Christian believer would join their body to an unbelieving person? What, what about that situation? Well, Paul is very clear. You are to stay as you are. Don't divorce your spouse. And the reason is there in verse 14. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the un unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. 
These verses are a little tricky. Paul cannot be saying that an unbelieving spouse is made a Christian or saved through the belief of of their believing spouse because in verse 16, there's still clearly a a question mark over the salvation of the unbelieving um, member of the marriage. I think it's helpful to remember that the idea of being sanctified or made holy can simply mean being set apart for a purpose. And it seems then that in the context of a marriage, even if someone is not a believer, they can still be set apart for the good purpose of marriage. They can still play a part in God's plan um, well and successfully, even if they're not a Christian. And it's because their spouse is a believer. That marriage is still pleasing to the Lord. They are set apart that way for service in marriage. And uh, Paul would also add that any children that come from that marriage union, they too are, are valid, not jeopardized in any way. And so he says, don't look to change your situation. Uh, There is one exception, uh, verse 15. But if the unbeliever leaves, let him do so. A believing man or woman is not bound in such a circumstance. God has called us to live in peace. If nothing can be done to rescue the marriage, if the unbelieving spouse uh, will not stay, they, they, they will leave, then it's okay to let them go. Better to live in peace. And this exception here in verse 15, I think is remarkably similar to the one exception Jesus gives in the Gospels in Matthew 19, where he says that a, a Christian well, a must not divorce except for marital unfaithfulness. It's not clear in Matthew 19 exactly what Jesus means by marital unfaithfulness. And uh, Bible-believing Christians uh, disagree over exactly what that phrase means and also whether if a marriage comes to an end because of marital unfaithfulness, whether that allows there to be remarriage uh, in the future. But my, my own view, and I know many in the room share it, is that in a very limited way, in certain situations, perhaps the one described for us in 1 Corinthians 7, where an unbeliever abandons the believer and will not stay in the marriage, with that kind of marital unfaithfulness in view, then the believer is not bound anymore to that marriage. They are free, and I think therefore free to consider remarriage. But for the vast majority of marriage, this exception does not apply. Paul would say, don't look to change your situation. But what does that mean for us tonight? At first, for those of us who are single, marriage is a good gift from God. It is a brilliant way to serve. But we must not rush into marriage lightly. If we are to marry someone, it is to be for life. We must not think there's a back door to our marriage in the future if it doesn't quite work out the way we want it to. If we are thinking of marrying a particular person, we must not just ask, do I... Do I I feel in love with them or do I find them attractive? Uh, Feelings, attraction, these things matter, but there are other important questions we must also ask as well. It's so easy to be carried away in the moment with excitement and we don't ask these other questions. Questions like, how do we communicate? Are we learning to talk about deep and difficult things or are they being pushed to one side in our marriage, hoping they'll just go away and resolve themselves. If issues around past sin, perhaps particularly past sexual sin, or abuse, 
or difficult wider family situations. If these kinds of issues, and there are others too, if, if they aren't being talked about, then they can come back with destructive force once marriage takes place. How do you deal with conflict? Do we shout? Do we ignore? Or have we found a gospel way to say, I'm sorry and I forgive you? Issues of money and how we want to spend our money in the future, or the kind of church that we want to uh, attend and make a priority, and how much of our lives we want to give to serving as a Christian. All these ways, and there are many more as well, these are things that can destroy marriages if they aren't talked about and agreed upon. And so if we are single and thinking about marriage, don't be embarrassed to ask for help and the wisdom from others. In this church family, there are many wise Christian couples who have discovered many deep truths in these areas. And do ask. We are richly blessed in this church family. For those who are married, we must work hard at our marriages. Even the best marriage will go through times of difficulty. Marriages take time and energy and lots of loving care. Good communication is one of the most important foundations of any strong marriage. In the busyness of life, long hours at work, I wonder if we are in danger of letting communication slip in our marriages. And for the men, I guess this is kind of anecdotal, but I've heard other people say it enough times. I think it's worth saying tonight. It seems to me that sometimes, perhaps often, it's, it, men can be consumed by a hobby, a time-consuming hobby that, that takes them away from investing good time in the marriage. I don't know, maybe it goes like this. We've had a long week at work, and we come to our day off, and we think, at last, a chance for some me time. And we have this hobby, and we're off. We've been looking forward to it all week, and we're away for hours at a time, enjoying the hobby at the expense of our marriage. Now, look, there's nothing wrong with a hobby. And perhaps in the early days, it didn't seem to have any downside. It seemed to be okay. But I've seen again and again how, and it can often be men, but not only men, they've got sucked into a hobby, a sport, an activity, which is, takes so much of their time that they should be in spending in their marriage. Much better to have a poor golf swing or a rubbish personal best, or play for one of the lower teams that only trains once a week, and have good time to spend investing in our marriages week by week. It is very rare for a healthy marriage to go from being brilliant in one day to coming to an end. Normally, marriages fall apart through a thousand little steps a failure to resolve conflicts, poor communication, poor decisions about time and priorities. And sadly, so often, when couples are going through difficult times, they leave it so late to ask for help that when they do say, we're in a crisis, it's, almost, it's just it's too far gone. The damage has been done. It's so hard to rescue things then. And so, can I say tonight, if, if you can see the warning signs in your marriage, if you know things aren't right, Perhaps use this sermon as the moment to say, right, we must take action. Uh, talk to one another. And don't be ashamed of asking for help as well. 
a small group leader, a, a close friend. Andy and I will be around at the end as well. We'd love to chat to you, and there'll be others as well that we can point you in the direction of. And let me say, certainly, if, if you have experienced or are experiencing any kind of abuse in your marriage, please seek safety. Please seek help. Let someone know. And one of the hardest things for any marriage is infidelity. And although it might mean the end of a marriage, it, it doesn't have to be the end. The cross of Christ brings a powerful dynamic into a marriage where we can repent and we can forgive in radical ways. There can be a way forward with reconciliation and healing in even the hardest of circumstances. Finally, for those who are divorced, there is forgiveness. If we look back over past decisions and we realize that we've made mistakes, remember Christ came to die for sinners, not for good people. And if we realize we've made mistakes in the past, if we live now with deep regrets, know that you can bring your sin to the foot of the cross and you will find forgiveness, healing, a fresh start. And I think Paul would say to you, if, if, uh, if you have remarried, then remain as you are in your second marriage, repenting if you need to, but staying as you are and serving in that new context. Don't look to change your situation. I am aware that what Paul is saying is tremendously challenging. If our situation is difficult, the thought of staying where we are can seem almost beyond what we can manage. And that is why what Paul says next is so important for us to hear. And so second, and more quickly tonight, look to Christ to assess your true situation. Paul now gives us two examples of people who don't like their current situation and would very much like to change it. He begins with circumcision. Look at verse 18. Was a man already circumcised when he was called? He should not become uncircumcised. Was a man uncircumcised when he was called? He should not be circumcised. Now look, my, my guess is that for most of us tonight, circumcision is not that big a deal. We, we don't lie awake at night worrying about that issue. But back in Paul's day, it was a much bigger issue for the church. Circumcision was uh, the, the physical marker that had marked out the Jews as being God's special people for centuries. And now when Gentiles were becoming Christians... They were wondering if they had to be circumcised as well in order to really belong as part of God's people. It's easy to imagine some Gentiles feeling like they weren't really belonging. They weren't part of the people without being circumcised. And I'm sure we can relate to that feeling. We hate not to belong, whether it's in the school playground or in the office in the sports team, in the friendship circle, when we discover and sense that we are just not part of the inner crowd, when we are on the outside, not the inside, when we don't belong as others belong, it's remarkably painful. That's the kind of dynamic Paul is getting his finger onto when he talks about circumcision. Of course, the stakes couldn't be higher when it comes to being part of God's people. 
were the Gentiles really in part of his people? Well, Paul says, circumcision doesn't matter. But perhaps even more shockingly, Paul then addresses slaves. Look at verse 21. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. Really? Slavery? Being a slave is, is kind of a big deal, Paul. Being a slave meant you had no freedom. It meant that you were at the lowest uh, ladder of the social uh, um, pecking order. It, it, it would affect everything about your life and your day-to-day experience. Don't let it trouble you. Well, notice Paul is not condoning slavery, and he does continue. Although if you can gain your freedom, do so. Better to be free than a slave. But look at verse 22. He who was a slave when he was called by the Lord is the Lord's freedman. Similarly, he who was free, a free man when he was called, is Christ's slave. This is a radical reassessment of position in life. The freedom of Christ trumps any human slavery. Now look, so often we have a pecking order in life. When it comes to uh, people, we have people who are boring and funny. And we, we fit somewhere between bottom and top, I guess. There's people who are popular and unpopular, and I guess we fit somewhere on that, on that sort of pecking order scale. People who are successful and failures, again, there's a scale in our hearts and minds, and we put ourselves somewhere in that scale. And isn't that why we so constantly find ourselves saying, if only, if only I was someone different or had something different or was in a different place in life, then I would be a bit higher in the pecking order on the things that really worry me and stress me out. But in Christ... We are someone. In Christ, we have arrived in a way that no other human status can make us arrive. That is why Paul can say about circumcision or slavery, these things don't matter, not in the way that knowing Christ and belonging to Christ matters. And when it comes to relationships, that's the context We are not ultimately defined by our marriage, and we are not ultimately defined by our singleness. If we are in an unhappy marriage, and even if we can see how that marriage might never change to be an easy one, that is not the final word on our situation in life. If we are single and desperately want to get married, That is not the final word on our situation in life. The final word is that we belong to Christ. For now, we live by faith and not by sight. But one day we will see with our eyes. For one day Christ will return and he will put this broken world to rights He will fix every wrong, he will wipe away every tear, and he will meet every deepest longing of our hearts. And when Christ returns, he will take us as his bride, and together with him, we will enjoy for eternity a perfect union 
of joy and security forever. Look around at your situation today. What do you see? Tears? Frustrations? A deep desire to run away and hide from it all? Look again and see Christ has you. He has bought you. The purchase price was his blood shed on the cross. He now owns us and he is coming back for us. And when he does, and when we see him face to face, what joy there will be in that moment. Look to Christ to assess your true situation. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for all that it means to be part of God's people. We thank you that we have been bought at a price, the shedding of the blood of your dear son. And Father, we thank you that in him we are free and yet we are owned. Father, please help us to be a people who learn how to assess our situation, not just by what our eyes can see, but also by what your word says. And Father, please help us to be a people who often look forward to the day when Christ comes back for his own. And please help us to look with great joy and great confidence. And then in the meantime, help us to stay where you've called us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh,